Welcome to the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. My name's Alex Clark, and this time I'm delighted to be joined by historian Hallie Rubenhold, whose book The Five won last year's Bailey Gifford Prize. I read The Five when it came out in in a proof version, in an advanced reading copy. Um, but because I was that that's a while ago, and I was going to talk to you again today, so I've been rereading over the last couple of days, and it just struck me again with such force what an amazing piece of historical research this is. Essentially, Hallie, what it is, is the five, as you call them, canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. We really have known so little about their lives or it's been discussed so little. And you decided to change that. Just tell us why and how you did that. Well, I mean, like like you noticed, you know, we have this great legend of Jack the Ripper. And for more than 130 years, it's focused on who was he, you know, and it's like a parlour game. It's about trying to put all the pieces, all the clues together, all the pieces of evidence together. And, you know, was it this person? Was it that person? And the interesting thing about this is that the story of Jack the Ripper usually starts with the deaths of these five women. So it's like these women only existed so they could die, so they could be sacrificed to a serial killer. And that struck me particularly. I mean, when I went about writing this book, what inspired me, it's interesting because it came about in a very roundabout way, as as often writing books does, you know, you don't necessarily set out to write the book that you end up writing. So when I was looking for another nonfiction project, I was thinking about the first book that I wrote, which is The Covent Garden Ladies, which was a book about a series of best-selling guidebooks in the 18th century to sex workers in Covent Garden and really the rest of London. I wrote a book about this and the three characters involved in the creation of this book, but I also profiled the ordinary lives of the women in these guidebooks who just happened to be sex workers. They were, they were ordinary London women and it, it gives interesting profiles of their lives. And this this book, of, of all the books I'd written to, to that point, seemed to be the one that captured the public imagination the most. And so I felt when I was going to write another book, I thought, well, why not go back to that premise of, you know, telling unknown women's lives but looking at the 19th century and also looking at sex workers again and I thought well who were the most famous sex workers in the 19th century well those will be the victims of Jack the Ripper and then obviously I started looking around at what had been written and there had been no book that was a full-length book that had been written about these five women together and their five collective experiences. And that that just shocked me. It just amazed me and shocked me. But also, you know, as I started then really looking, really diving into their lives and the material, it became very apparent that there was a tremendous amount of question as to whether they were sex workers. I thought, gosh, that's that's really quite incredible. You know, we've got it so wrong. And so, you know, all of this kind of unfolded very organically. I followed the leads of of the evidence and ended up writing the five in the form it is. And it is really, as you say, with, with a, a, 
something at the beginning and, and a, a very kind of strong epilogue. But essentially, the book is the five mini biographies. And you're absolutely right. The thing it just strikes you with with such amazement that we do in the collective imagination think of these women as sex workers. And yet there's a real question mark over whether I think at least three of them were. Sometimes it seems that it's something that is said of women if they have fallen into difficult circumstances, poverty, marital breakup is a kind of common thread across these women. Um, And so essentially, if they are on extremely hard times, it is just assumed that they have been selling sex, essentially. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, this is really interesting. It totally oversimplifies the experience of women in the past. And this idea that if women fall on hard hard times, they become sex workers. Well, yes, this is true to a certain degree. But also, you know, there is a huge amount of variance in women's experiences. And, you know, you have to think of the prejudice that existed that ascribed a value to women's sexuality and that prejudice would ascribe a value based upon how young or how old or attractive she was and it's interesting to note you know a lot of people don't realize that four of the five victims were in their 40s when they were killed only Mary Kelly the last one was 25 and she actually was a sex worker she worked in high class sex work she was based in Knightsbridge and Piccadilly St James around that area which was the center of the sex trade in the late 19th century in London before she ended up in the East End so she had much more sexual capital but the others you know I mean this is this is where you know all of these assumptions come in that are so wrong and they're so entrenched in the way we think about poverty and women and you know they're very much of a 19th century mindset nobody considers that there was a whole economy of the slum you know when you were poor there were lots of ways that you could get money begging and borrowing stealing getting involved in all sorts of scams and schemes doing basic amounts of work people pieced together subsistence and existence that was based on all of these types of things and you know even the authorities of that time of the Victorian age were not willing to really pull apart these ways of living and distinguish them in the same way that they regarded women who had failed in life who didn't live under the roof of their father or their husband or a male family member who weren't mothers who weren't caretakers who were defective in some way whether that meant alcoholic maybe they had mental illness they conflated that with the concept of the fallen woman who was sexually tarnished it was believed because she had quite simply sex outside of marriage and so you know you had the woman who was defective because she didn't live up to the description of a Victorian description of what it meant to be a good woman and a fallen woman. So the broken woman, the fallen woman were the same thing. A woman on the street is both a broken woman and can be a fallen woman, but they are not necessarily one and the same thing, though the Victorians certainly thought that. It becomes just clearer and clearer, something that we 
know must be true, but to have it demonstrated in such amazing detail as you do, that there is absolutely no safety net for these women when something goes wrong. So the, the first victim, Polly Nichols, actually did have a life that was relatively stable, didn't she? She had a marriage. She moved into one of the first Peabody properties so that she had a roof over her head with sanitation. And then it kind of went wrong in the way that marriages break down, life goes wrong. But that was kind of the absolute sort of death sentence for her way of life, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, th- this was the real problem is is if a woman steps out of that prescribed role, there is nothing for her. I mean, society is structured in a way in which the concept of a single woman is anathema. Women are not single. There is no place in Victorian society for a woman who is self-sustaining, self-sufficient, doesn't need a man. That it just it was anathema. But you know, it it can be said that society looked askance at men who were bachelors who didn't want to have a woman in their life because you have to understand that the men and women served very distinct purposes within the society and they were gender prescribed roles and a woman needed a man to look after her she needed a man to look after her because a woman could not earn the type of money that a man earned it simply you know, those types of jobs didn't exist. You know, women's work paid far less for the very reason that it was meant to be a supplementary job. You know, she wasn't meant to be the breadwinner. So she couldn't sustain herself without a man. So she she needed a man. She needed a man to protect her, to give her a home. A man needed a woman to keep that home, to look after his children you know because men and women were supposed to create children they were supposed to get married they were supposed to have a home that was that was the whole meaning of life that was the most important thing it didn't matter what class you were in it was fundamental and that's something that we today have an incredibly difficult time understanding you know the idea of not getting married you know if you were a woman was absurd you know a single woman walking around by herself was a prostitute because that's the only place there was in society for a single woman. What struck me too about these women, and they are, as you make the point, very different women. They are specific characters. They're their own characters. And we find out things that, you know, I had no idea, for example, that one of Jack the Ripper's victims was Swedish, was an Im- a Swedish immigrant, for example. But it, it struck me that they had pretty much all of them gone through significant levels of trauma. They had lost children to, you know, that idea of a woman having to keep a home and raise children. Many of them, most of them had suffered, some had lost many children with incredibly high infant mortality rates and disease rates. And again, there was nothing that really supported them. And I was really interested to discover that alcoholism did feature quite quite heavily in several of their lives they kind of in a, in a sense went to pieces and then they were just exposed weren't they yeah annie chapman who was the second victim she really suffered with alcoholism i mean they were all touched by the drink in some way alcohol played a role in their lives certainly in the later part of their lives you know alcohol was there to basically drown your sorrows and there were a lot of sorrows to be drowned and it was also 
very widely available. It was cheaper than food in some cases. And the pub was the one place where the, the, the poor and the working classes could socialize. There was no other place really area for recreation and for meeting up, creating a sense of community. And so, you know, alcohol was there. Annie Chapman, for example, she's very interesting. And, and again, I find her life incredibly tragic because at that time it was so difficult to claw your way out of, out of poverty. And she and her family managed to rise to the lower middle classes. And her father had been a trooper in the second lifeguard. So he was part of the household cavalry. She grew up between Knightsbridge and Windsor, moving between the barracks. And then she married a gentleman's coachman. And John Chapman, you know, made a really good living as a gentleman's coachman and for a while they lived on a country estate just outside of Windsor and they were able to put their daughters into a fee-paying school but the problem was that Annie was an alcoholic and so that just tore the family apart and she spent time in one of the first women's rehabilitation centers and you can see the degree to which I mean, there, there is a letter that was written by one of her sisters to the Pall Mall Gazette, which details what the family went through. And you can see how Annie suffered and what she says to her sisters. You know, she came out of this rehab center and she she was OK. And then she lapsed again. And she said, look, I just can't I can't stay away from the drink. And I will stay out of your way and I will go my own way. I'll do my own thing. But but, you know, I have to have the drink. And in this, you know, this desperate voice of somebody who is suffering from alcoholism, who can't do anything about it, because it was hereditary. I mean, her father was an alcoholic, her brother was an alcoholic. And this was part of her incredibly tragic downward trajectory. She had also, hadn't she, in, in childhood, Four of her five siblings had died in a very short period. Her father had committed suicide. And it seemed to me it came back again and again across these women. They were often children who had to grow up so incredibly quickly with so few, again, safety nets around them and somehow did manage to keep their lives going in some or other fashion as you say, against most incredible kind of societal odds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the Smith family, Annie was born Annie Smith, it was extremely difficult. I mean, the, the emotional strain of living at that time, not only being poor, but, you know, disease and death affected everybody. Annie lost four siblings in the course of I think it was three weeks to scarlet fever and typhus. There was a, you know, they had these these little epidemics that would sweep through London every once in a while. And, you know, imagine that. Imagine losing your family members so quickly. Your, you know, your children just being carried off like that. And Annie also lost a number of children. She lost pregnancies because she was an alcoholic. And even in the 19th century, they recognized the link between alcoholism and infant mortality. And, you know, I mean, desperately, desperately sad. And a number of these women really suffered. Catherine Eddowes, who was the fourth victim, drank. 
Elizabeth Stride drank, Mary Jane Kelly drank, Polly Nichols drank. So alcohol played a significant role in, in all of their stories. I found Elizabeth Stride just so fascinating. She is the Swedish immigrant who essentially just had to make an entirely new life in London. I was kind of horrified to find that, you know, the, the horror of this phrase, that when she was in Sweden and had, had been working as a prostitute, she was on something called the Register of Shame. And in order to somehow extricate herself from that life, had come to London and actually had had kind of built a new life, had had a completely different sort of life. The idea of kind of women's identity and women in flight from their pasts is very strong in this book. And I wonder how that felt as you were writing it and you were piecing together evidence without any great um, historical resources at your fingertips. I mean, they must have been very hard to find out these lives. They were. And, you know, I was sifting through documents in the archive and, and looking for little shreds of things that I could piece together. But, you know, the great the great fallacy is that, first of all, we can't tell the life stories of the poor. Well, we can. And I remember even as a historian starting out, well, even as a postgraduate, you know, some well-meaning emeritus professor saying, well, you know, there aren't histories of the poor around because they didn't leave records. They couldn't read and they couldn't write. And so there we go. You know, we can only tell the stories of the elites. Well, it's complete rubbish. I mean, I think what has change that a lot is digitization and digitization of documents has made these stories much more accessible it means you can get to them more readily so a lot of my work was done via looking at census records looking at parish records birth and death records marriage records workhouse records army records education social housing records you know people leave traces of their lives throughout this and you have to string it all together and yes it is much more work than simply pulling a volume off of the shelf of somebody's collected letters or a memoir but you know you are telling a story that hasn't been told before you are reconstructing a life and the ways in which you can do that convincingly even if you don't have their own voice what I did was you know I, I basically was able to create an entire timeline of where they were and what they were doing at various times in their lives and yes there are blank spots but for women especially of that class your life is very prescribed so you're going to have a very narrow set of options so if somebody is in a certain place at a certain time at a certain age their option is either going to be a or it's going to be b and you can sometimes tell by where they ended up which road they took and you layer that experience with the experience of other people so, for example, Catherine Eddowes, we know, was a, gave birth in Great Yarmouth Workhouse in the 1860s. We may not have her specific account of what it was like to give birth in Great Yarmouth Workhouse. But we can find somebody else's and they can talk about what it was like. And that would be roughly an approximate experience of what she would have. But it's also giving voice to a lot of poor women. Um, and it's piecing together a lot of stories that help to tell a collective story through through one person's experience. Because, of course, what, what you're also doing is painting the portrait of an era. And when you open the book, you make the point that the year before 
these women died was the year of Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. And there was this enormous sense of pageantry and celebration and the kind of coming together of all the achievements of her reign. But then you also had something that I knew nothing about, the great uprisings of poverty, people camping in Trafalgar Square. And it's just an incredible portrait of that that very specific pre-20th century era, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm so glad you've pointed that out. I chose to start the book with those two contrasts because this is is sort of an example of how we choose to tell history, which is we have one story that is accepted and the story that we always reach for. And then we have another story which lies beneath it, which we choose not to tell. And like you, my God, you know, I'm a historian and I never knew about the Trafalgar Square riots. And that was absolutely shocking to me. And you realise, my God, there is like this whole strata of unmined history beneath the surface. And it's, you know, it is infinitely just frustrating to me that in our popular discussions of history and the way we examine it, deconstruct it, we never get beneath really that top layer, which is kind of kings and queens and wars and statesmen and what I call banner headline history to get into the real complex stuff, the more interesting stuff. I I feel I am on a quest to put it at the fore of the public's attention Stories that do not get and have not got the attention that they deserve. We need to hear different stories, not just the same old historical bedtime stories, you know, the same things over and over again, but the more complex stories. Do you think we're beginning to? I mean, do you think through books and television series and film and discussion, historians are beginning to have more power in telling those stories? No. (laughs) I don't. I think we're fighting. We have to think, you know, when we say historians and history, there are two two kinds. Really, there's the stuff that's going on within the academy, which is this nitty-gritty, finite, looking at things under a microscope, which is, is fantastic. You know, that is real history happening at the coalface. Then there is the public face of history, the history. And what unfortunately doesn't penetrate is this complexity and this nitty gritty and this stuff that's happening in the academy that really, really must come to the public's attention because it completely transforms the way we understand our past and therefore completely transforms who we think we are as a nation, who we think we are as individuals. I carry the banner for for social history because I think social history often gets very lost in all of this. You know, when we're talking about, you know, biographies of statesmen and, and monarchs and wars, often we lose the human experience in history. We lose the importance of understanding how we made the physical world we currently inhabit. And I mean, why it is that we think the things we think or do the things we do, why our houses look the way they look, why we live in them the way we live in them, why we have knee-jerk responses to things. Those answers can all be found in social history. And that's kind of tucked away beneath 
these big anniversary celebrations of you know the, you know VE Day or you know women getting the vote and you know then everybody celebrates this and looks at this and a lot of people write books about it in that year and then it's gone and we don't discuss it anymore and we discuss nothing else and it it sucks all of the oxygen out of the room there is no other room for discussion of other histories women's history BAME history all of these things which have been othered need to be integrated into what we consider history in general. There shouldn't be a big history and then everyone else's history. And then the sort of extras on the side that you might look at if you're you're feeling that you've got a minute to spare. I suppose, I mean, in, in its kind of microcosm, the Ripper story couldn't speak more directly to that because, as you say, people have been obsessed with the identity of the Ripper They've been obsessed with the manner of the killings and they have essentially just ignored the women. Now, I know that despite the amazing plaudits that this book has so deservedly got, including, of course, the Bailey Gifford Prize, this has been a very difficult publication for you, hasn't it, in terms of doing battle with, you know, the people we call the Ripperologists. It has not been easy. No, you know, they did not like this book at all. And I am absolutely anathema now. They don't like me. They took against me from the moment the publicity for this book started, nine months before the book came out. They didn't like the assertion that this is the first book that ever looked at the victims, even though you can look at the whole canon of stuff written about the victims, and there is no single full-length book dedicated to five canonical five victims. That is indisputable. That is indisputable. And they were absolutely furious that my publishers would be saying that. And then I started getting trolled, and I started being told things by ripperologists like, you can't make these assertions about your research. You can't question the things we say. Until your book comes out, we can read it And then we can tell you if that's a legitimate claim or not. Well, who are you? What sort of person says that to somebody else? I think there's jealousy. I think they're frustrated that they weren't part of this process, that I'm an outsider from this kind of charmed circle and that I did something that didn't include them and somehow it denigrates all of their research You know, and if you look at their forum sites, for example, all it takes is a quick scroll through all of the all of the subjects that they're talking about. How was this person killed? How many cuts did this person have? Was she murdered this way? Was she lying this way? Where was her body found? You know, it shows you where their focus of attention is. It's not on the humanity of these women. By and large, the bulk of their attention is focused on finding the murderer, the murders themselves, you know, with some attention, some, you know, interest in the experience of living in Whitechapel, policing, all of these other things, that does factor into it. But most people get involved with ripperology because they like a good murder mystery and they like the gore. And I guess there's that element of the sort of grail, isn't there? That person is going to say, no, I've, I've beyond doubt proved who it is and who it can't be and all the rest of it. It strikes me that the most kind of noticeable thing about that attack on you is that I don't think you express in even half a sentence in this book any interest 
whatsoever in the identity of the murderer. And the extent to which you talk about the deaths is minute and matter of fact. In fact, you only really talk about them to the extent that they impact the people around them. So you you describe, you know, families of victims being told and having to identify bodies, but you're completely uninterested in everything that has become the centre of this enduring Jack the Ripper trade, aren't you? Yeah, because I think it's time to move on. To coin the phrase. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, an, that's a better use of that phrase, Ali. <laughs> Um, no, I think because I think, you know, there is enough information out there about that. We have given enough attention to it. We've given enough space to it. And why do we need to rehash the details of how these women were killed and how they were found? And it's not part of, well, you know, I mean, I think my criteria for all of this was, is this part of a life story? of a hearsay, you know, the, the possibility this witness may have heard this, and we don't even know. None of these witness sightings or the things that the witnesses heard are, can or were confirmed in any way. We don't even know if they were seeing victims. So that's not part of a life story. What is part of a life story is someone's lived experience. And so it's not important to include things that are not that don't speak to that. And again, you know, if you want to know about the mystery of Jack the Ripper, there are libraries of books you can read about that in. You know, it is a perfectly legitimate thing to be interested in true crime. It is perfectly legitimate to be interested in trying to understand what makes people do terrible things to other people and how these crimes unfolded but I think you know there are ways of handling this which are ethical and ways which aren't and and I think we need to rethink about how we look at true crime. Holly can I ask you I mean given that this book had a, a real emotional impact on me and I, I don't believe I'm alone among readers I can only imagine it had an enormous impact on you doing the research and then bringing it to fruition. How do you move on? I mean, how do you move on to the next piece of your writing life? Oh, gosh, it's so hard. It's been incredibly difficult. And actually, the one thing that weirdly the lockdown has helped has been to try to I don't want to say draw a line, but to move me into the next book that I'm writing and to get me to focus on that rather than running around the country and doing lots and lots of events, which I have been doing and around the world actually, and talking about the five all the time. And now I'm thinking about the next book, which is, um, which is, I imagine that would be your, your next question. What is your next book? My next book looks at the murder of Belle Elmore by Dr. Crippen in 1910. Again, this is a, you know, quite a famous murder, but one of the things I noticed straight away is if you remove Dr. Crippen from this murder mystery and this entire kind of circus that occurred around this in 1910, there is this story which is almost entirely populated by women and women's experiences at the turn of the century and middle class women. And 
an unbelievable amount of professional women who had so much agency that it's it's staggering to consider in 1910. The book covers roughly the period from about the 1880s to 1910. And looking at it through the three women who involved with Crippen, but also the musical Ladies Guild who helped to bring him to justice and telling that story in that way. And it's a different way of looking at it. It's a different way of looking at true crime. I mean, it's fascinating just to, and thank you for, for, I always feel it's slightly awkward about asking people about their next book because they might justifiably say, you know, just let me finish this one please <laughs> not hassling for the next one but what strikes me is amazing is that you're talking about a period of time 20 no more than 22 years after the time that you've just written about and it sounds like an entirely different society it is and I mean I think this is going to be a vehicle for looking at that society as well and how it changed but it's also looking at the experiences both transatlantically, because Dr. Crippen and Belle Elmore were both American and half the story takes place in the United States, everywhere from Brooklyn to the Wild West, and then London and the musical scene and and this whole kind of bohemian life. These are the middle classes, the lower middle classes, what it meant to be middle class, the kind of scrabble up the ladder to become middle class, how one defined oneself. And right at the burgeoning of what we think of as really the modern world, the 20th century. And what a time to be alive in the course of the time that this this book takes place. You know, you had the development of the airplane, the car, the radio, the moving picture, everything changed. And it takes us almost right up to the eve of the, the First World War. What an extraordinary time to be alive. What an extraordinary time to write about. I really, really can't wait to read it. And just to coin another phrase, since that's what we do, we will meet again. You, We will have you, I hope, in Cambridge at some point, and we'll talk actually face-to-face about your work, your new book, this book. But Hallie, I can't thank you enough for coming and joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, you're very welcome. It has been a pleasure. And I so look forward to seeing everybody in person once again when things get back to normal. And now back to writing for you. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Real life. And that was Hallie Rubenhold. Thanks so much for joining us on the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. As ever, I'd like to mention that CLF is a charity and that the pandemic and lockdown has had a severe impact on us. If you can possibly make a small donation, please visit our website. But otherwise, we'll see you next time and stay safe and well.